This episode of Mossback is presented by the Port of Seattle. His sort of superpower was he got charged up the worse things got. Like the more desperate, the more trapped, the more struggle. He, like, took energy from that. everybody, welcome to Mossback, the official podcast of the Mossback's Northwest video series from KCTS 9 and Crosscut. I'm Sarah Bernard. And I'm Knut Berger. And today we're heading into the Arctic with Roald Amundsen, one of the most prolific and intrepid polar explorers of the early 20th century, who it turns out had a strong connection to Seattle. If you haven't already seen the video, which has tons of great footage of icebergs and ships in Seattle in the early 1900s, we suggest you stop right now. Go to the show notes or the show page on crosscut.com and check it out. We'll see you back here in a bit. The early 20th century has been called the heroic age of polar exploration. By ship, dog team, aircraft, and on foot, explorers sought the ends of the earth. And what's little remembered now is the role Seattle and the Pacific Northwest played in the polar probing that dramatically changed our understanding of the planet. What kind of sparked you on this particular episode of Mossback's Northwest? What, what, uh, how did we get to Roald Amundsen? (laughs) (laughs) So it was the snowshoes. Oh, snowshoes. Yeah. And uh, also a little bit of personal family history. So I happened to be over at the National Nordic Museum in Ballard talking Mm. with the curator there. I asked if they had any interesting artifacts that I should know about. (laughs) And she said, "Um, yeah, we have rolled Amundsen's snowshoes. (laughs) And Amundsen was a big name in my family only because, well, he was the greatest polar explorer of all time, and he was Norwegian. My grandfather was Norwegian. Mm. My father was very interested in things like polar exploration and geography and that kind of thing. And my mother, in fact, had sat on Richard Byrd's lap (laughs) as a child. So there were these sort of, you know, interesting connections. My father told me that Amundsen's ship was in Seattle at one point. My grandfather took him down to see it. And my grandfather was an engineer, and it was a marine engineer, among other things. He invented a lot of marine equipment. And uh, they had gone down to the Seattle waterfront and seen uh, the Maud, which was one of Amundsen's boats. And so this question uh, was in my mind is, how how did we get Amundsen's snowshoes? I mean, here's the guy, you know, who beat everybody to the South Pole. Mm -hmm. He had a famous race with Robert Falcon Scott, the British explorer, and Amundsen beat him to the pole. Scott got there too late and then died on the way back. But Amundsen became, you know, a global celebrity for having gone to Antarctica and reached the South Pole. You know, how you know, how did his snowshoes get here? That that was interesting to me and it was so it was just kind of a magical thing. It's like yeah. And then of course I learned that the reason the snowshoes were here is that Amundsen had been on an expedition that was the first to fly over the North Pole mm. had flown from Norway to Alaska in a dirigible. <laughs> and I've always liked dirigibles. That's a, like a fascinating thing in history to me. Mm-hmm. So it turned out that this airship that 
uh, Amundsen and others flew over the pole kind of had a hard landing in Alaska, that there are actually pieces of the airship in different museum collections around. Washington State Historical Society has, you know, like part of the envelope of the, the gas bag and part of a radio and these pieces. So there were people who sort of took souvenirs and brought them to town. And it turned out that Seattle, after Nome, Alaska, Seattle was their first real welcome back from this expedition. Mm. You know, they crashed up in Alaska. They made their way to Nome. People of Nome were mildly interested, (laughs) apparently. Uh But then they got on a boat, came to Seattle, and there was a huge welcome for them here. Uh, Of course, we have a huge Scandinavian community, Mm. but the co-conspirators with Amundsen on this expedition were Nobile, the Italian airship designer. His folks had been part of the crew, and Nobile himself was on the expedition, and an American explorer named Lincoln Ellsworth. Hmm. And Amundsen was here briefly, but it turned out, you know, Amundsen had been to Seattle many times before on other expeditions and spent quite a bit of time here. He spent nearly six months here during the period in the 1920s when the Maud, one of his exploration vessels, was being repaired here in Puget Sound. He gave them as a gift to a friend— somebody he had uh, become acquainted with, and then eventually they worked their way to the museum. Mm. And these uh, snowshoes were identical to Lincoln Ellsworth's snowshoes, which are in a museum in Norway. And so this is how they were able to determine that they were authentic, was because they knew those ones were authentic. I was just fascinated, like, here's this fascinating artifact from the famous, most famous polar explorer. He was here in Seattle. And let's let's take a look at why that was. So that was the genesis. Wow. The genesis of the whole thing. Finding a water route through the far north was long a goal for explorers and colonizers. Explorers like Captain James Cook of Britain came to the Northwest seeking the legendary Northwest Passage, a northern sea route rumored to link the Atlantic and Pacific. Empires hungered for the trade such a passage would bring. They sailed until they were stymied and sometimes crushed by the ice. The loss of an expedition led by the British Navy's Sir John Franklin, who was seeking the Northwest Passage, spurred more exploration. Franklin and his crew entered and then vanished into a forbidding icy realm in 1845. Search parties for his ships and crew were unsuccessful, but they extended geographic knowledge. Franklin's quest and fate inspired a 15-year-old Norwegian boy to find answers. His name, Roald Amundsen. Amundsen was just, you know, this kind of amazing person. One of his first major expeditions, he was um, not in charge of it, he was just a crew member, was a Belgian expedition that went to Antarctica. And this was like... His first experience, like not just being trapped in a a snowstorm in northern Norway, but I mean being locked in the ice in Antarctica for, you know, a whole year. And um, in reading about that, you learn about Amundsen that his sort of superpower was he got charged up the worse things got. Hmm. Like the more desperate, the more trapped, the more struggle— 
he like took energy from that. He focused. He like could solve the problem. He could engage in it. So while other crew members are, you know, languishing or or complaining or whatever, Amundsen is like, oh, I like this. I can, mm, yeah. <laughs> and so on this on this expedition, for example, they were all starting to get scurvy, which mm. is, of course, one of the problems with, you know, not having access to meat or fruits and vegetables in the Arctic. Yeah. And Amundsen figured out that raw penguin had huh. just enough in it to keep you from getting scurvy. Whoa. So the crew divides. Half the crew is eating raw penguin, and the other guys won't touch it. And Amundsen not only can tolerate eating raw penguin, he likes it. <laughs> you know, and this is kind of a classic, like, Amundsen trait. You know, like if it's hard, I like it better, you know, and and then, of course, he survived all kinds of, you know, extreme conditions. Right. I mean, that is just one of the details in the video, which it took a total of three years or at least two winters for him to make that kind of first uh, Arctic expedition in a ship going along the Northwest Passage, right? And it, he was like inching along. Right. You know, in the, in, in the 19th century, the sort of great you know, treasure of knowledge was the Northwest Passage, right? Mm-hmm. This this is what is going to connect Europe with a sea route to the Pacific. And so the British and other European explorers are going up and they're trying to find a way across North America by ship. And it's solid ice up there much of the time, right? right. Especially back then. Right. right. And so, yeah, Amundsen wanting to sort of fulfill the mission that, that had killed Sir John Franklin and his men. He took a, a converted herring boat called the Goya and he, uh, you know, equipped it with food and and uh, supplies and and a small crew and figured out, well, we'll we'll go in open water to this point. We'll get locked in. And but the ice moves, you know, mm-hmm. the ice moves with current. So we can we can just if we can survive and the ship won't be crushed in the ice, it will carry us along. Then mm-hmm. when the water opens up, we can make some more progress and we'll get frozen again and it'll carry us a little further. That expedition succeeded. It was the first vessel in the exploration era to prove that there was, in fact, a Northwest Passage. Right. And that you could do that. We'll be right back. The Port of Seattle has a mission to be the greenest and most energy-efficient port in North America. How? Here's one recent example. The port partnered with the community to construct the Duwamish River People's Park and Shoreline Habitat, the largest habitat restoration project on the Duwamish River in a generation, creating 14 acres of critical fish and wildlife habitat while providing public shoreline access. This large-scale restoration project supports recovery of the endangered southern resident orca population by significantly increasing habitat critical to abundance and health of Chinook salmon. For more on this project and the port, go to portseattle.org. Dreaming of a long-awaited vacation? Take your travels to the next level with Alaska Airlines. They're committed to providing a higher standard of safety and cleanliness throughout your journey. From mask requirements and touch-free options to HEPA filters on board and fresh air every two to three minutes. Plus, their award-winning loyalty program, Mileage Plan, makes it easy to earn and redeem miles wherever you go 
including destinations worldwide, thanks to their One World Alliance membership. If you're ready to land a low fare, next-level care, and the best experience in the air, book now at alaskaair.com. The MOD became a kind of multi-year floating laboratory, taking scientific readings. At one point, the MOD came to Seattle for repairs and refitting after its propellers were damaged by the ice. Amundsen stayed in Seattle for six months. He met a local Danish-American businessman, Hakon Hammer, who became his business manager. Amundsen was a spender and had to raise vast sums for his expeditions. Sounds like Amundsen had to raise a lot of money. I don't know exactly where he would get it, but, but it strikes me that it would be uh, a huge economic boom to have the mod be here in Seattle, um, you know? Oh, I'm sure the publicity was great, you know. Yeah. And, and that's one of the other things about this time period is all these tools for publicity. The 1920s, you've got newsreels. You have Amundsen himself taking cameras with him on these expeditions, stuff that 20 years earlier was still photography at best. And even that was difficult to obtain because of the conditions and the <laughs> technology. You know, it's not easy to process glass plate negatives in, a, you know, in some of those kinds of environments, yeah. let alone carry them around. So you have the ability to, to take film cameras. You have newsreels hungry for news. You have radio, which is budding, which not only is a, a 911, you know, help, we're caught on the ice, come get us. Mm -hmm. uh, more importantly, it was for radioing news of your expedition to the nearest settlement so they could turn it over to the newspapers. Mm -hmm. I mean, I know on the Norge, you know, there were plenty of newsreel photographers and whatnot that could show the dirigible coming out of its hangar and fly, taking off or landing, mm -hmm. whatever. They took footage from the cockpit on the, <laughs> on the dirigible, and they were just, you know, had a small camera and were hanging out the window just shooting what they were seeing. Mm -hmm. Amundsen needed publicity to raise money. Right. I mean, I imagine. some of the expeditions had government support. Mm. The Norge was partly paid for by the Norwegian government. Oh. So he had sort of official sponsorship for some of his stuff. But for other stuff, he was completely reliant on his own funds or funds that he was able to raise from sponsors or from, you know, Explorers Club or geographical societies, but also just donations. He went on, you know, massive speaking tours. He, he wrote some books. Hmm. You know, he did everything he could to raise money, he went bankrupt at least once. Uh, <laughs> I mean, he put everything into it yeah. himself, you know, and yeah. he had a prodigious appetite for spending money. Mm -hmm. <laughs> These things were very costly that he, yeah. but he could also sell it. He could also sell the excitement of discovery to people. Yeah, I wonder, I mean, did he, do you think he spent time gathering support, including financial support in Seattle, those six months when he was living here, maybe? Yeah, I mean, he actually found a Danish man right. from Seattle who became um, his business manager and who helped raise money, although apparently that didn't go too well after a period of time. That that was around the time he went bankrupt and oh, okay. claimed mismanagement on this guy's part. But yeah, they were and they were able to go to the Norwegian American community and others to, you know, ask for financial support. 
Amundsen had used his time in Seattle to outfit for a new era of Arctic exploration with modern technology. On board the MOD were two new airplanes in crates. Amundsen intended to pioneer the Arctic from the air. He wanted to fly from Alaska to Spitsbergen in Norway. You know, there's, there's a level of Intrepid that is so far and away beyond anything I could sort of imagine, for example, for myself today, because uh, Amundsen is saying, I'm going to go to this place where it's below zero. We don't have enough food. We're not sure what we're going to find. We have no way of contacting anybody. We could definitely die. Definitely. And some people did. And it's like that, I don't know, that, that sort of character of that person is sort of psychologically fascinating to me. <laughs> well, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, in some ways, Amundsen could be very stern and severe and and in other moments, you find you hear about Amundsen, who's, you know, much more personable and engaging. And I think I think the thing about him that comes through in a lot of these is that no matter how much danger is involved or self-imposed torture, he keeps his head. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. he's not somebody chasing myths. He's not somebody who's delusional. He's hyper-engaged in every moment of it. Mm-hmm. He also is trying to bring back information. He's trying to bring back knowledge. He, he, he really had purpose. Mm-hmm. You know, he really had things he was trying to understand and bring back. There's an intellectual aspect to it also, as well as technological innovation and adaptation. The adrenaline rush versus this problem-solving persona in extreme situations, they have something in common, but they, they seem really different to me. Mm-hmm, one, mm-hmm. I, one I don't get, because I've never met an endorphin, <laughs> right? I've, I've, I could run for six or eight miles, and I just feel like crap. <laughs> don't get me wrong. I think he was competitive. Yeah. He wanted to be first. Mm-hmm. And that brings us to a question that, you know, I, I mentioned in the video, which is, so right before the Norge took off, Richard Byrd, who I mentioned earlier, the American polar explorer, took a plane and flew to the North Pole. Mm-hmm. And you'll see newspaper headlines, you know, Richard Byrd reaches the North Pole, first person to fly to the North Pole. But a subsequent look at his readings indicate he may not have reached it, mm-hmm. that he turned around early. Mm-hmm. I don't know whether he was 100 miles short or 200 miles short, but he didn't quite make it. So that would make the Norge the first verified flight over the North Pole, which is what Amundsen wanted to achieve. And he was worried that, you know, Bird had beat him. Mm-hmm. So there was that kind of competitive thing. There's a controversy over whether either or both <laughs> or neither Perry or Frederick Cook reached the North Pole first on foot. Mm. So, you know, Cook was uh, unable to definitively prove with his readings and and photographs and whatnot that he had actually made it. And he was a good friend of Amundsen's. They had been on that Belgian Antarctic expedition together, and they had bonded in terrible times. In fact, I think it was I think it was Cook that said, eat the raw penguin. And they became lifelong friends, even though Cook was later convicted of, I think, mail fraud or something and imprisoned. And Amundsen actually visited him in prison, and they continued to be friends. But 
He had also claimed to um, have climbed Mount McKinley, and that's been proven to be wrong. And Robert Perry's navigational records have come under suspicion, too, that they are not entirely accurate, and there's question as to whether he reached the North Pole. So Hmm. if you take Perry and Cook out, then Amundsen was the first to reach the South Pole and the North Pole, even though Hmm. he did it in an airship. But I, I just find that, you know, kind of in a fascinating aspect of the story, that these other claims, which were given great credence at the time, have kind of faded under modern scholarship and analysis. Maybe we don't know more about it, but it sounds like Umberto Nobile was doing another uh, Arctic journey by plane, and then he needed a rescue. And then Amundsen went to rescue, but then he never came back? Yeah. So Nobile followed up with his own expedition on a dirigible called the Italia. Mm-hmm. So it was, a, it was another airship expedition. Oh. And they crashed mm. not long after they left. And the crew was, there were some were killed and they were separated. Some were stranded in one place and others were still, on, you know, ended up in a different place. So when this accident first came to light that it had happened, uh, it was near enough to civilization that rescue efforts were mounted. And Amundsen and Nobile did not have a great relationship. There are several points at which there was some ruffled feathers, mm-hmm. uh, one of which was when They came to Seattle after their successful flight over the North Pole. The Norwegians had been told not to bring any extra gear. They needed Mm. the ship as light as possible, so they didn't want people bringing extra stuff. And on the the steamship down from Nome to Seattle, as they were arriving in Seattle, the Italians put on their full-dress uniforms that they had smuggled aboard. Mm. So when when, when they landed, Amundsen and his men are dressed like, prospectors, you know, mm-hmm. and they're kind of rough, cold-weather clothes. And Nobili's people have, you know, he's got a feather in his hat, his, you know, mm-hmm. and brass buttons, and they look sharp. Mm-hmm. And there was, there was a large turnout from the Scandinavians, but also the Italian community here. Mm-hmm. And Nobile got all the attention. He looked mm-hmm. like the most important one. Amundsen was not happy about that, uh-huh. getting upstaged in this media moment. Mm-hmm. Nobile was in the, you know, in in the Italian military. He was uh, Mussolini embraced these things as as propaganda events, mm. and that kind of also drove a wedge between Amundsen and Nobile, which is, you know, you're representing a fascist country, mm-hmm. and he was, you know, he he was uncomfortable with that. Well, when he heard that Nobile had been lost in the Arctic, he joined the search. And so Amundsen was on a plane, I think, with four or five other people. And the plane took off to go look for him. And the the plane disappeared. Hmm. Never been found. Never even been found, yeah. Yeah, no, no. I mean, so, you know, Amundsen was lost looking for a fellow Arctic explorer who he didn't like much. (laughs) Yeah. And um, so that, you know, has become sort of part of his legend, but also the idea that kind of like his hero, Sir John Franklin, he is lost in the ice, lost in the Arctic somewhere, you know, is is kind of part of the circle of that story, (laughs) where he started and where he ended.
Thanks for listening to Mossback. This episode was produced by Jonah Cohen, and the executive producer is Mark Bumgarten. If you'd like to check out more videos from Mossback's Northwest, you can find them all at crosscut.com or kcts9.org. The video series is now in its sixth season. A new episode airs on Seattle's PBS station, KCTS 9, every week through mid-November. You can subscribe to the Mossback podcast wherever you listen. And whatever platform you're listening on, please review us. We want to know what you think. For more on all things Mossback, go to crosscut.com slash Mossback. And if you'd like to support the work we do at Crosscut, whether it's our lineup of podcasts, the live events we host every month, or the in-depth reporting we deliver every day, go to crosscut.com slash membership. In addition to supporting our journalism, members receive complete access to the on-demand programming of KCTS 9. And being a member means you can sign up for an exclusive weekly newsletter from Knut Berger, where he offers even greater insight into his latest historical discoveries. For the latest political, environmental, and culture news from the Pacific Northwest, visit crosscut.com. Mossback is a product of Cascade Public Media. I'm Sarah Bernard. We'll be back soon with another episode.